This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. The big four banks have recently announced results and there's a definite pattern there profitability is slowing down. NBR's Australian correspondent Lachlan Calhoun is on the shoeshine beat this week and has been looking into the story. Lachlan, um, you'd think with interest rates going up, the banks would be making hay. Uh, What's going on there? Hi, Dita. Well, look, there's a definite pattern for second-half profits to slow down. Uh, We saw NAB, Westpac and ANZ, they all reported full-year results. Brilliant first half, second half, a big slowdown. So the common terminology, and a couple of the bank bosses used that, was that old one, uh, challenging operational environments. <laughs> so at, uh, at Westpac, the second half profits uh, were down 20% on the first half. And also CBA, they a bit out of sync with their reporting, but they reported quarterly results, best described as flat. Uh, and the issue is that margins are being squeezed and there's been a mortgage war on and there's also a battle for deposits. So net interest margins across the big four have fallen between 2 and 9% in the second half, according to an analyst I spoke to from UBS. Wow, that's quite significant, isn't it? So the mortgage market hasn't been as lucrative for the banks as you might expect. Uh, no, and you would think so with interest rates going up, as you said, you think they'd be making hay, but and this is happening on both sides of the Tasman because people are coming off uh, the fixed rate mortgages they locked in um, when when interest rates were at ultra lows during the pandemic. And so they're starting to shop around, but there aren't too many new borrowers coming into the market. Mm-hmm. So it's a big story about refinancing mortgages. Uh, and so the banks are either trying to keep the customers they've got or poach them from the, from, from the competition. And so that has created a mortgage war. Uh, and so here in Australia, there's um, the, the big banks, are, some of them are offering cashbacks of up to about $4,000 if you sign on to them for a mortgage. Um, and that, um, you know, I mean, the banks are making like $7 billion profit, might not seem a lot, but uh, it's cutting into profitability a little bit. And we've seen that in the second half. So is the property market flattening as well in Australia, sort of uniformly across the country? No, the property market's actually going gangbusters in, in price, um, oh, but, uh, but there's a, a lack of stock uh, and people aren't selling. And a lot of people are, um, in terms of the banks, uh, it's all about, about refinancing. So not a lot of new business in, um, in in the lending book. So the volumes are not increasing a lot. Uh, they just tend to be, uh, be refinancing what they already have. Right. What about the other side of the equation, funding? Um, is that also having an impact? Yeah, indeed. So, um, so during the uh, the pandemic measures um, here in Australia, and I think they had something similar in New Zealand. Um, the RBA had the um, term funding facility, which was um, um, gave the banks really cheap funding um, d- during the pandemic. So they were just uh, sucking on that teat, uh, and um, but that's run out. Um, and so now the, so that means that the banks um, they're trying to find alternative funding sources now. I mean, obviously deposits are not their only funding source; they go to capital markets for a lot of it. But uh, but it does mean that they are competing for uh, for deposits. Um, and in the, in the view of some analysts, they're paying uh, way overs in terms of uh, what they should in terms of basis points. And so we've got on one side um, you've got the mortgage war, and on the other side there is a growing battle for deposit funding. Wow. Um, What's the outlook like going into next year? 
uh, more of the same and probably getting worse um, for the banks. So there's a couple of phrases you might use. Um, I might say, you know, the party is over for bank profits. Uh, UBS had a research note um, and that was titled The Last Hurrah, which is probably, um, you know, also an accurate way of putting it. So you'd say margins continue to be squeezed, uh, both sides of the ledger. Also costs have been going up. So in terms of the competitive landscape, the banks are likely to continue to compete against each other very hard because uh, while profits might be pegged back, they can still afford to compete. I mean, they're still making, like, I think the, the profits are $7 billion plus annually. So, you know, this is, pegging them back is not going to really hurt a lot. So they can afford to uh, to, to compete. But also in the case of ANZ, who have been um, among the hardest competitors here in Australia, they need to show that they're ultra competitive because um, they, they want to take over Suncorp Bank in, um, in, in Queensland. And the regulator is, the competition regulator has said, no, that'll be bad for, bad for competition. So ANZ have appealed against that ruling. Um, and so th they can't sort of drop the ball now in terms of competition um, because they need to show to the regulator that, uh, that they are ultra competitive so that they can hopefully get this, uh, this, uh, this takeover across the line. So there, there won't be any return to, uh, to cartel-like behaviour, you wouldn't think. I mean, even though in reality we do have a cartel because the big banks are the only ones who can afford to play like this. I mean, mm. I'm talking about sort of bank profits being crimped at the big four, but the smaller banks have even bigger funding and margin pressures than the, than, than the big banks. Um, so the, the other angle on this story is that it's going to be really tough for, for smaller players uh, in an environment where the, where the big boys are playing rough. So the other thing to say about it is that um, over here, the RBA could potentially cut interest rates towards the end of next year, uh, depending on what happens with the economy. And that's going to be a big political dilemma, which could exacerbate the squeeze for the banks, because you imagine if the RBA cuts by 25 basis points going forward, would the banks pass all of that on or would they hold on to 10 basis points to shore up their profitability? Mm -hmm. They'd like to, I'm sure, but that would be very controversial. And... Um, and so that plays into the longer term discussion about what is fair competition. Um, but to return to the uh, 2024 outlook, I spoke with UBS analyst for my story who said they saw average bank profits for the big four down between six to eight percent in 2024. Can I ask you in Australia, do the banks sort of hype up the woe is me narrative the way they do in New Zealand because they want to sort of detract from the fact that they do have this enormous market power that you, you're talking about? Uh, yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> they do. And they also sort of invoke the fact that uh, that so many Aussies are shareholders that uh, that, that, that our profits uh, um, are going are going to people in in the community. Mum and dad investors are, uh, are investors in um, in you know the big four banks and they live off the dividends. Retirees live off the dividends. So um, so our profits um, are not only good for us; they're good for everybody. So so that's kind of the the narrative that they use here. Yeah, very clever. Speaking of uh, share pro shares, um, is all this activity having an impact on the share price? Do you think? Um, it would seem that it's currently baked into the into the prices across the sector. So that's pretty good news for investors. Um, the, the ones that I've just spoken about is the market pressure is already there um, on, on a lot of the shares, and of course, um, many people, as I said, hold the big four banks for the dividend rather than the capital growth, and so they're likely to continue to be rewarded to a reasonable extent. In terms of pick, um, it's a matter of opinion and research. But in my story, I spoke to uh, John Storer, who's the, uh, the UBS analyst here. Uh, they've got several recommendations on Westpac and NAB. 
and neutral on CBA and ANZ. But he says uh, ANZ is a very different beast to the others because it has a much more diversified franchise and it's got a big international business, institutional business as well, which uh, which sets it apart. So so it could be interesting to see what happens to ANZ shares um, going forward in 2024, particularly if their appeal um, on Suncorp is successful and they could uh, they could take they could take over Suncorp. That might give it a bit of a boost. Whereas the other banks are still constrained by the by these macro um, conditions that I've that I've outlined in my story. Lachlan, thanks so much for Shoeshine this week. Cheers, Dita. Thank you. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. Trade aid has made a name for itself around the country and despite 50 years of business shows no sign of heading into retirement anytime soon. Trade aid chief executive Jeff White joins me now from the company's hometown of Christchurch to talk about the company's origins and where it's heading to next. Welcome Jeff. Well um, why don't you sort of tell me a wee bit about the origins of trade aid and sort of how the company got into retail? Um, the Well, well the or- origins really are um, a couple, Richard and Vi Cottrell, who looked after working with Tibetan refugees in India, came back to New Zealand and wanted to do something to help them. And they were carpet makers um, uh, embedded in their culture. And so they bought a shipment of carpets back and got those to sell over here, put them into an art gallery and um, sold them out about in about 20 minutes. And so they realised that maybe there was a there was uh, an ongoing business they had here that would that would um, help improve the lives of some of the most disadvantaged or economically disadvantaged people around the world. So um, the idea originally was was simply to have samples of products and then contact details and pass that on to people. But interestingly, at the time, um, through the Catholic Church, even though we're 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 not at all a religious organisation. Through the Catholic Church, they were they were looking at liberation theology, and it was being well taught down here in Christchurch by a Father John Kernow, who had a, who was running a seminary for young priests, and they got a bit excited by the whole idea of this, and were looking around for how could they get involved, and they heard about Trade Aid and what it was trying to do, and so they decided to open a shop um, within the within the. Um, uh, the, the Catholic Cathedral. There was a wee store on the side, we building on the side, and they said, "Send us some products, and um, and we'll sell them for you." And so it, it started. That was Trade Aid's first store, um, and then they just opened around the country. Following um, at the time, there were a lot of Corso shops around, and they were through that same um, Catholic organisation, and so they said, "We'll sell Trade Aid products as well." And it was pretty um, uncontrolled and went and opened and opened and then took a life on itself outside of that Corso network. And people in towns just contacted Trade Aid and said, we're going to start up a shop as well. Of course, they weren't trading as Trade Aid then. They had different names, um, uh, the Best Little Small Planet and um, Third World Traders uh, was a common thing. Um, so these happened pretty haphazardly and outside the control of Trade Aid itself. And they ended up somewhere with about 38 shops at one point. And over over kind of the next 15 years uh, that that happened, 
And then it got to the point of, um, okay, this is getting a little bit out of control. <laughs> and the idea was to bring them under one kind of banner and all trade is trade aid, which was fairly contentious at the time. I, I believe there were a lot of arguments going on that they didn't want to give up their own individual identity. But but in the end, they came around to trading was trade aid stores and and the network of stores developed from there. So it's why it's they're developed into like a franchise agreement because they were always outside of what trade aid was. You know, now of course they're 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 the heart of what trade aid is. So it's interesting to see how that retail network has developed over time. Yeah, that's um that's really interesting. And I know you've carved out a, a big space for yourself in the commodities uh, sector. Can you tell me a wee bit about how you've come to represent about twenty percent of the local coffee market? Yeah, um, I guess at the time, um, sitting there, I'd been on board for about three years and we were saying, well, we're generating reasonable profits here. Um, we've got to do something with them. You know, it's no point in us just sitting on cash or, or money. And so we, we looked around and, and the first thought was, do we expand into Australia and, and go there? But at the time, Oxfam trading, Oxfam itself had trading shops in Australia. So we decided, well, that wasn't too nice going over and interfering with their market. And we'd, and, and I think that was just coming off the back of the warehouse who'd maybe tried to foray into Australia and hadn't gone well. So our board was pretty nervous saying, well, if they're not going to work, how are we going to make it work? Um, and we'd always bought in a small amount of coffee, a very small amount of coffee. So we sort of talked amongst some of the staff, one of, a couple of them, the staff here were quite involved in the coffee business and said we could we could bring in green beans and fair trade the coffee market. And so we decided to get into it and we bought in eight tonnes, our first order, which is half a container load, which is, we found someone who'd sell us half a container load, which is a bit unusual, usually you're going to buy a whole container. So I kind of, but that was two years supply for us at, at that time. We had a small, tiny little business going with green, uh, of our own usage. And um, so I had sleepless nights over that one. I remember that quite clearly. I was almost traumatized by putting all this money into two years supply of green beans. But today that has grown to 1800 tons. Um, and as I said, that's about 20% of the total specialty coffee market and specialty coffee markets, everything except instant. So it's been a real success story for us. And where do you see the business sort of evolving to next? I think it's following that similar line to what we did in coffee, which is realizing that that we can't do it all ourselves. It's just not possible for us to hit the market on, on our own and grow into all the different areas. So it's really opening up our supply chains. Um, we've got 75 trading partners in, in about um, you know, 40, 45 countries around the world. And it's really opening those up to other businesses and facilitating that trade. I think that's clearly uh, direction for us and to to, I guess, sit in between and help people manage the relationship. One, one thing that I've discovered over this time is most businesses don't know how to have a really good relationship um, with their suppliers and, and what that looks like. And that is a, a full understanding of their, of their situation, of their capabilities and their capacity. Um, and, and then working so that so that both ends of that supply chain uh, benefit from the supply chain. So I think that's a role that we'll play more often. And do you think Trade Aid has been successful in both its mission and as a corporation? 
I think I think as a as a business, it's been successful. I think we can point to that, and we can see that see the growth in that on its mission. No, um, because there's so much more still to do. Um, you know, we're we're sort of saying, what well, seriously? We're 50 years old. And we're still here. That was never the plan. And and I would say it's got worse in the last couple of years. You know, whenever the financial pressure comes on, and we've seen through the um, pandemic that the situation of the people that we're trading with has got a lot worse. They're in countries where there's no government support at all. You're locked down and there's no money coming in. And that's just set both individual people and their businesses um, way back in quite a number of years. Um, and, you know, it's taken probably 10 years off the development that, that we, we saw with them through there. So, um, so I'd say that we've still got an awful lot of work to do. Well, um, thank you so much for your time. That's fine. Thank you very much, Kate. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. With us now is NBR's economics commentator, Christoph Schumacher. So, Christoph, you're feeling a little bit bored about New Zealand. <laughs> yes, in, in a way, because it's just sort of a limbo phase. We have a caretaker government, so not much is happening on that front. At the same time, um, inflation is going down, so we're happy about that. But it's not enough to make a big dent or make a big difference when we go to the supermarkets. Um, economic growth rate year hovering about around zero, just positive. So nothing bad, but nothing good either. So, yeah, it's all a bit subdued at the moment in New Zealand. Mm, so the economy is performing a lot better than expected. As you say, inflation is slowly coming down, unemployment nudging higher. The Reserve Bank reviews the official cash rate this week, expecting no change. Yes, I wouldn't see a reason for change because, uh, yes, the inflation rate has come down, so it's a good thing. So I don't think the Reserve Bank has any real reason to um, change anything. It hasn't come down enough to go down, and I don't think it, it will in the, in the near future. But given the, the social consequences of, of a high cash rate with high mortgage rates, um, I yeah expect, like most other economists, that it'll stay where it is for now. Do you expect them to change the track of the OCR at all? No, not not really at, at, at the moment. Um, unless something unexpected happens, I think it's exactly that limbo phase, as I described at the moment. Things are just moving along okay. Nothing too good, but nothing too bad either. So rates on hold all of 2024? Uh, possibly there are some indications that maybe um, if the economy picks up better and it becomes stronger and then and, and, and we see the inflation tracking the right direction more towards our target rate that we might see a, a change maybe uh, mid-24 but I don't think um, much is going to happen within the next 12 months now. More broadly when looking at New Zealand what challenge do you throw down to Christopher Luxon about giving the economy a bit of a boost? Um, 
The bigger issue for New Zealand at the moment is, of course, that China's economy is slowing down. And there are also some political issues, some, some larger crises in the world that China might get involved in. And given the reliance of New Zealand in terms of exports on, on China, um, there's always a danger that uh, if the Chinese economy slows down, so will the New Zealand economy. Um, so really, there is an, an urge and a need to diversify our exports. And that's nothing new. That has been in, in the pipeline and the discussions for years for the outgoing government, for the current government. Um, we are looking for other countries that would like our products that we can explore and expand our export markets. So that is one of the challenges. And, and Christopher Luxon has already identified this uh, with India being a prime uh, target. Um, it has been proven difficult to get in, into India, especially the dairy market. But um, that has been identified not only by Chris Luxon, but a uh, key government tried to uh, expand further in, into India. So that's something that has been on the cards uh, for quite some time, and maybe now the pressure is rising to make it a reality. Mm. The challenge is, though, how long will that take? And his aspirations to get something done in the first term may be a little bit overly optimistic. <laughs> it will be overly op optimistic, yes, I entirely agree, because he's not the first Prime Minister who's tried you know, to enter what has proven to be a, a difficult market. So yes, of course, as an incoming prime minister, you want results and you want them quickly. You want to show that you can make a difference, especially with something that has been part of the campaign as well. So there is some pressure, but yes, I also believe it's a bit optimistic. What could realistically be achieved in three years? Um, maybe uh, some uh, agreements that give some more access. We are not talking straight away of some form of free trade agreement or a wider area, but at least in some sectors, it might be good to, to get an agreement, to get it growing. Often those relationships develop over the years. You try a bit, if it works, you expand. And that has been the approach taken by Europe as well for, for many years now. So um, get some runs on the board, and I think that would be a, a good start. Looking more broadly at the world, you're saying those international pressures are still quite fragile. We're seeing ongoing conflict in Ukraine and Gaza. How would you describe it at the moment? Yeah, the question for, for Kiwis is, of course, will that reach New Zealand? What will the impact be, be for us, um, especially if uh, there are conflicts uh, in regions that are major oil um, producers. We have seen it when the Ukraine crisis started, oil prices rose by 35% and we could feel it at the pump. Um, and it puts upward pressure on inflation because if petrol goes up, all those transport costs increase and that gets pushed on to the customer. Just think of supermarkets, the amount of product that gets transported on, on, on roads. So there was initially a fear that similar things might happen um, when the Middle Eastern crisis started, but it didn't. Uh, yes, oil prices rose by about 4 to 5% overnight, but then dropped um, straight after that. Why? Because um, oil supply in that region is currently not really under threat. Yes, there is a risk, but output hasn't been uh, reduced. So at the moment, we, there's very little danger and little risk that this will reach New Zealand anytime soon. Mm. What about on the ground where you are? Oh, it's, it's a very, very different situation here, uh, especially with Israel in, involved and the history Germany has. So um, it's a topic that 
Yeah, there is this background and it, it, it's very realistic because uh, I've seen here demonstrations almost every day. There are pro-Israel, anti-Israel um, demonstrations happening all the time in different cities here. So it's far more real here in Europe, especially in Germany, than it is, for example, in New Zealand. And that's resulting in spending cuts by businesses and households? Yes, yes, actually we do see a big, and the, the German government is in trouble as well because uh, they've been overspending. Germans now ask for the government to be more prudent. Um, so similar things to what we've seen in, in New Zealand before. Um, the current uh, great coalition with, with, with Labour and then the Greens um, has spent more than they probably um, should have. And currently the economy is slowing a bit down and that is impacted by the crisis in the Middle East as well, yes. Christoph Schumacher, thanks for your time. You're most welcome. Today in Toil and Trouble, NBR's employment law slot, I'm talking to Legal Vision Associate Ruby Mills about two topics. The first, new health and safety guidelines for mentally healthy work, which WorkSafe is consulting on currently. And secondly, the perennially interesting one about the rights and wrongs of termination. Ruby, thanks so much for joining us. Um, let's start with these WorkSafe, uh, the WorkSafe consultation. What is this all about? Yeah, thank you, Dita. So WorkSafe are consulting at the moment on, as you said, health and safety guidelines. These are for PCBUs, um, so that, that includes employers um, that aim to highlight the importance uh, of supporting mentally healthy work. So this is a growing space in New Zealand. Uh, the guideline is at a draft stage and it kind of groups well-being into sort of three main areas, sort of being work design, social factors um, and the work environment generally. And it kind of in introduces concepts around the primary, secondary and tertiary interventions that uh, PC, PCBUs should be looking at in regards to those psychosocial risks at work. So why was this introduced? I think, Dina, to be honest, Australia has seen a, a massive push um, in, this, in this space. Um, and, and I think based on the health and safety and work deck that we have um history would definitely suggest that we do follow Australia and at the moment um, the Health and Safety at Work Act does require um, persons conducting a business that the PCBUs um, to manage hazards, psychosocial hazards and risks. Um, however, there is no specific provisions on this. So Australia has introduced um, basically a requirement that employers and PCBUs must prevent employee burnout um, or focus on the causes and contributors to mental illnesses such as anxiety and PTSD. So based on what Australia has done, there is now likely a push in New Zealand and this guideline might just be the start of that. Do you think it would survive a new government that's sort of trying to get rid of regulation in the workplace? That's an interesting one. Uh, judging on what they've indicated, it may be that there is an overhaul. So, and I guess judging on what their other um, possible policies are, that maybe not. However, you know, it is an important area. Um, so it depends on what the government sees as whether this is a focus or not and whether they do decide to proceed with implementing any new laws. Whether it goes as far as what Australia's done, um, that will be interesting to see. Um, and it has caused, you know, quite a lot of pressure for New Zealand, I'm um, sorry, Australian employers, um, particularly in workplaces. So 
that's an interesting one. I guess we'll definitely see in future if this does get implemented in any further way. In terms of how much further it takes what happens at the moment, I mean, at the moment I have seen cases where um, people can argue that their mental health issues were not considered in various um, terminations or conversations in the workplace. How much further could this potentially go in terms of putting an onus on employers to watch out for these issues? Yeah, so I think it would just create more pressure around making sure they manage and eliminate and control and monitor these these factors before they become an issue. Um, I think particularly too, I think at the moment, generally when you hear psychosocial hazards, employers just think of bullying, um, possibly. And I think the new focus will be that it actually encompasses a, a much wider range of psychosocial hazards, uh, and it, particularly a way of, of looking at managing these psychosocial hazards. So to answer your question, it may just introduce more focus for employers um, over and above what they already do in terms of how you know the workplace the, the the makeup of the workplace and a whole multitude of factors can really affect a workers well-being and would this sort of come under the auspices of worksafe so worksafe would would watch for these um, for, for this to be enacted Yes, I believe so so it would be a focus of worksafe it's already a focus of um, them at the moment but judging on Australia um, based on what they're doing, it may become a real area that they focus on. So I guess in the employment space, um, as you as you mentioned, it's already relevant. Um, it's already relevant that employees must sort of take on board, particularly if um, employees are looking to go through disciplinary processes or perhaps performance um, management processes. If mental health at the moment is raised, it's definitely a health and safety risk. These guidelines would just basically introduce more factors for them to consider would be more guidelines, so they do have more guidance on what they need to do to manage it, um, which does sort of bring in control measures. However, yes, it, it is definitely something that WorkSafe are likely to focus on. Wow, very interesting. Okay, let's go to the case that you raised, um, and it's to do with unjustified dismissal, but I have to admit I find it quite a confusing case, so maybe you can enlighten me. Um, because, for yep. example, he's um, he's claiming unjustified dismissal against a company that claims it didn't employ him, or wasn't employing him at the time. So can you just explain what happened there? Yep, yep, no, totally. So um, this one here, he was employed originally by a company called Shipco. There was in a joint venture with a company called NGS. And I and the, the issue there and that you've highlighted is that it wasn't clear of who his employer was at the time he was dismissed. So uh, the case points out that he was transferred to NGS. However, the employment agreement was never actually signed, but the basis of that was because there was an error. Um, but the court ultimately held that the, the second entity, so NGS, was the employer. So that was who the grievance was um, essentially meant to be um, raised against. And that, that was based off the joint venture confusion, basically, of who the employer was. Right. But he was initially employed by Shipco, wasn't he? Correct. He was initially employed by Shipco and then was his role was transitioned to NGS after the, right. after the venture and his reporting director or his management changed. And that was really where the termination happened and the confusion was, you know, where he was, which, which controlling party essentially was the employer at the time. And ultimately that was found to be the second respondent, which was NGS. So, so the very first lesson off the bat is update the contract with your employee if they come under a different boss or a different company. Correct, especially after a joint venture. So if the ultimate entity changes, there is a process to go by where um, employees will shift possibly to a new entity. All of his leaves transferred um, and 
to the new entity and then the ultimately the court found that they were the employer. Right. But that wasn't the only mistake that was made in this case, wasn't it? Um, can you just explain what other mistakes were made? No. So um, essentially this case involved the employee walking into um, his new manager's office and where he was presented with a record of settlement. Um, he was told along the lines of this isn't really working out and that was the extent of his um, reasoning for termination. So the employee was confronted with the record of settlement. Um, but prior to that, there was no disciplinary issues raised. There was no performance issues raised. However, sort of later on, um, his uh, employer alluded to performance issues. However, these were not substantiated. And, and ultimately, there was just no grounds that the court, the sorry, the Employment Relations Authority found that there was absolutely no process followed. There was no substantive grounds either. Um, and so, the award in this was really the um, the outcome of of having such a poor process followed. How can a case like this get like tie up the Employment Relations Authority? This seems pretty cut and dry. I mean, they just didn't like this guy for whatever reason. It was never established. Uh, they went through the wrong process. They tried to get rid of him. Why couldn't that have been sorted out before it got to this point? Look, I think coming from an employment perspective, some t perspective, sometimes you do have parties where they just do not want to negotiate, particularly sometimes you, you find that in the, the, the possibly the power imbalance if NGS or... Um, Shipco, you know, there was a bit of confusion as to who was the employer. So um, that may have been a focus and not settling the negotiations that they ultimately needed a determination to decide that. And then secondly, just the negotiation, po negotiation power, I guess, if you take a, um, you know, a strong stance and you refuse to settle, that's essentially where you end up if you don't settle before the authority. Right. So... As, from an employer's perspective, if you have an employee that you actually, you don't really like, you don't rate them, you think they're, you know, underperforming or whatever, yeah. what, what's the process you go by unless they do something egregiously wrong? Yeah, so I, if you are not, in terms of not, there isn't really grounds in New Zealand for just not liking an employee, unfortunately <laughs> that's that's um, part and parcel, but there is um, a fair process to be followed no matter which uh, process you decide to take, whether it's performance or whether it's disciplinary. So those are the two avenues. Where, or, of course, there is options around redundancy or restructure, but that's kind of separate to performance or disciplinary. They're very separate processes, and it's really important that um, a process is followed no matter which option um, an employee wants to take, whether it's performance or disciplinary. And the court did point out here that minor flaws, you know, they're not um, going to give rise to an unjustifiable dismissal if they're minor. However, in this case, it was so far from being fair and reasonable that the courts that really did um, award quite a substantial amount to this employee. And I think that's that's a good reminder. And often we have, you know, there might be a commercial decision where, okay, it's, it's more beneficial for us to perhaps terminate an employee without those um, substantive grounds and without a procedure being followed. But the ultimate outcome in this case was a, a sum of 130000 around that um, being awarded. So it does make you question from the employee's perspective, employer's perspective, um, what what is worth doing, whether it is better to follow the fair process or you do end up in this case um, being you know, awarded a substantial amount towards towards the employee. And secondly, there was also a punitive amount of, I think, 5,000 um, against the employer. Ruby, thank you so much for talking to MBR. Thank you, Dita. And that's been this week's People in Business. Thanks for listening. 